You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, if you would, would you go to the book of Hosea? Hosea is the first of the 12 minor prophets. He is in the Old Testament. It comes after the major prophets, so it's, it's right after Daniel. You got Isaiah, big long book, Jeremiah, big one, Lamentations, Daniel, or Ezekiel, Daniel, and then we've got Hosea. And Hosea is uh, one of the 8th century prophets, is how we talk about it. He, he's prophesying uh, before Israel goes into exile, meaning before the enemies of Israel come in and wipe out the land and take the people away into slavery. Um, eighth century prophets are Isaiah, um, Hosea, and Amos. And so we um, are going to look at Hosea this morning as the last figure in our series on Jesus in the Old Testament, where we are looking for the types and the echoes of Jesus throughout the Old Testament, as the Old Testament is longing for and pointing to the one and only Savior, the Son of God, Jesus, who we are introduced to in Matthew chapter 1. Well, as you're turning to Hosea, I want to remind you this morning of um, probably the greatest movie that was ever made, or at least one of them, 1980, John Travolta, uh, Deborah Winger, and it's Urban Cowboy. And it um, set a nation on fire, really. I mean, I'm just going to tell you. Uh, the, the, the skinny jeans, uh, the uh, bad cigarettes, the light beer. I mean, it really, really defined us as a nation, I, I think. And it's, it's, been, it's been good since then. Um, but it, um, it's great. It's a great movie. It, it's, it's, it's incredibly well done. And at the same time, it is incredibly depressing all at the same time. The movie had a great soundtrack, too. One of the songs on the soundtrack was sung by a guy named Johnny Lee. And in 1980, Johnny Lee records this song. He, up to that point, had been um, a nightclub singer at Gillies uh, uh, before this movie. The song comes out, goes to number one, and changes everything for him. He then becomes a really popular nightclub singer at Gillies. Um, so... But here's the lyrics. Uh, you probably know it. If I could, I'd sing it. Uh, everything in me wants to, but I, I will spare you. Um, well, then I'd have to two-step and then the whole nine yards. And it, so it says, well, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good-time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win. And telling those sweet lies and losing again. And then you're ready. Here's the chorus. You, you know it. You could sing it. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces. You can look it up on uh, YouTube and you can see it's a montage of John Travolta and Deborah Winger just dancing. It's weird. Um, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Hoping to find a friend and a lover, I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. And then the second verse of the song really 
It really captures the whole thing. I mean, it's where it's leading. It's, it's, the, it's the sadness of the song. It's the sadness of the reality that it's singing about. And I was alone then, no love in sight, and I did everything I could to get me through the night. Don't know where it started or where it might end. I'd, I'd, I'd turn to a stranger just like a friend. Isn't that sad? Isn't it real? You know, while it's the, um, the song off the hit movie Urban Cowboy from the 1980s, it, it very well could have been the hit song from the soundtrack of the Old Testament. Israel's theme song. Generation after generation after generation of God's loved people looking for love in all the wrong places. Well, that's where we are, and that's what Hosea is going to be talking to us about. And so Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, we'll just start there. We'll go through chapter 1. I will summarize chapter 2. I want you to see a couple of things, and we'll finish up in chapter 3, and we'll do all that uh, in a timely manner. So, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now, here's a little background. So Hosea, like I said, he is prophesying before what's known as the exile. And what he's, the exile is when the enemy, the enemy nation comes in as part of God's judgment and they wipe out the nation. God's people, they come into God's land, they defeat God's people, and they will carry them off into slavery and replace God's people with their own people. And so Hosea is writing at the end of what is known as the northern kingdom. Now, don't want you to get confused, but, but it's helpful to understand this. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God, the Israel, they go in united, 12 tribes united into the promised land. They conquer the promised land. They have a period of time of judges. And then there's a king, King Saul. Saul is anointed as king over the united kingdom. And then David becomes the king. And then David's son after him, Solomon becomes the king. And during Solomon's reign, the kingdom reach, it reaches its greatest expanse and greatest po uh, prosperity up to that point. Solomon dies, and his son, Rehoboam, is anointed as the king. But he has a contender named Jeroboam. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Jeroboam leads a coup. He takes ten tribes with him, declares himself to be the king over these ten tribes, and when the kingdom's divided, the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah. The Davidic line is in Judah. The northern kingdom is an illegitimate kingdom with an illegitimate line. There are no good kings. In the 200 years of the northern kingdom, there's not one good king. There's a few good kings in the southern kingdom here and there, but there's none 
that are good in the northern kingdom. And Hosea is writing at a period of time, he is born into the last 70 years of the northern kingdom. And it is the height of prosperity for the north. The height of prosperity for Israel. In fact, prosperity unparalleled, except for the time of Solomon. They have expanded their borders as far north as Israel will ever have their borders expanded in the Old Testament. And Hosea is going to show up. Now, this northern kingdom, this Israel, they never followed God. The guy who founded it, Jeroboam, he walks in, sets up camp. He builds two um, uh, altars. He, He builds two golden calves, nonetheless, so that everybody has a chance to worship the golden calf, serve the Baals. That's the kind of situation that he sets up. And God's hand was against Israel and his kings all along, although he had great compassion on them and didn't destroy them until the, t- till the end. And we'll see here how Hosea is going to talk about that. God is gracious to them over and over, and they mistake his graciousness and his patience and his pity for his pleasure. And that's the situation they're in. And Hosea is going to step up and he's going to announce, hey, listen, God will not tarry with this any longer. You are committing spiritual adultery against the God who loves you. And he will not let it go on forever. And the people wouldn't hear the message. Man, it's a time of prosperity. Everything's going well. God can't touch us. That's the spirit of the day. Interestingly enough, this is a bonus. If you read Jonah, Jonah prophesies just before this. He's from the northern kingdom, born into the same time as Hosea. God sends Jonah up to a place in Assyria called Nineveh. Nineveh is called in Jonah the most wicked place on the earth. God sends his prophet to the most wicked people on earth. And you know what they do? They repent. Israel doesn't. They hear God. Israel mocks God. It's quite a contrast in our Old Testament. Well, in in verse 2, let's get through this. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You you get the message? So he went and took Gomer the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, at my daughter's elementary school, Catherine's elementary school, in the spring, they do career fairs. And they do this to expose kids to all kinds of different trades and professions and help them line up things they're interested in and know, hey, this is the kind of education you need and all, all those things. In the 8th century elementary schools, 8th century B.C. elementary schools at career fairs, they didn't invite prophets Nobody wanted to be a prophet. It's it's a hard life that God had called Hosea to. See, he wasn't just called to preach. I mean, a a prophet, here's what they would do. They were called to to preach. They were were called, the message they delivered confronted the way God's people lived. Nobody liked them. They weren't reading their blogs or downloading their podcasts, nothing like that. He wasn't called just to preach, though. Hosea was called to embody 
the message. He was called to be a living demonstration. It wasn't just his words that were going to make people uncomfortable. It was going to be his very life. And in verse 2, he instructs him. He says, Jose, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a woman that is going to engage in promiscuous, adulterous relationships and ultimately sell herself as a prostitute. The commentators are divided whether she was had lived that lifestyle beforehand. If he married a prostitute or she became that, I, I tend to think she became that after the birth of the first child. Either way, Hosea knew what he was getting into. You're going to take a wife of your youth and you're going to stand before the people and make your vows. And she is going to go sleep with every man in town. So they're married, and they have a child. In verse 4, And the Lord said to him, Call his name, this child, Jezreel. For in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, this northern kingdom, Israel. And on that day I will break the, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And Hosea says, nothing's wasted in Hosea. Literary masterpiece. The names of the children symbolize the judgments that are going to come upon a nation for her harlotry. Jezreel is this place where Jehu, who is Jeroboam II, the king at the time of Hosea when he comes into ministry, is his grandfather. Jehu became king because he killed the king that was in office and his wife Jezebel. And by the way, he went ahead and killed the king in, of Judah as, at the same time. And then he slaughtered 70 of Ahab's sons. And he actually did it because God told him to do it, but yet it, God told him to do it, installed him as king, promised him that I'll see your kingship through for four generations because you were obedient to me. And Jehu turned around and led this nation into great wickedness and sin and never turned his heart towards God. And so what he's saying is, hey, listen, the end of Jehu's reign, the end of this prosperity, the end of all the things that you've been living in because of my compassion and my grace, that's coming to an end. I'm about to, I'm about to break, I'm about to crush the heart of your pride. The prosperity is about to be gone. That's what he says. And then in verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for, I'll, for, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. Israel, you're going down. I'm going to have mercy on Judah for the meantime anyway. And when she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you're not my people and I'm not your God. And Hosea doesn't tell us if he's the father of the last two children or not. This is just the problem with promiscuity. And when your wife's a harlot, I mean, you just never know. And there's no Jerry Springer to go on and have a paternity test. So the names of the children, no mercy, or 
and not my people, or literally not mine, are, are meant to show what kind of fruit the life of adultery bears. God's patience is going to come to an end. His pity on them is going to come to an end. The pleasure and the prosperity that they have been chasing after is about to run out. And they come to the point of no return. They're about to lose everything. And God's going to remove his hand of compassion and turn them over to themselves. A couple of things I want you to see about this. We'll move on. But one is that this is not just a metaphor. This isn't Hosea standing on the street corner saying, oh, I got this great story, this hypothetical I want to tell you about. No, he's living this reality. With all the shame and all the gossip and all the whispers, he's not on the street corner. Gomer's on the street corner. And then the alleys and then the bars and then the motels. And God is wanting to display. He's using Hosea, his prophet. He has called Hosea to the most unimaginable pain because he wants to display to the world in the most vivid and painful and intimate way the nature of his relationship with his people. See, the Bible uses several images to talk about God's relationship with his people. A king and servants. A shepherd and sheep. A father and a son. And it's as though he comes through Hosea and he says, look, and those are good. They're biblical and they're right. But you can't know the depths of the intimacy of the relationship that God desires with you without understanding him as a bridegroom. So marriage is the most intimate relationship. It's personal. It's, it's deep. The, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying same time as Hosea. He's going to very clearly declare the judicial judgment against Israel for breaking the covenant law. And Hosea is going to come along and very, very clearly demonstrate the broken heart of God. You're going to use this man who is going to have to live and bear with an unfaithful wife. It's an intimacy that the depth of relationship and marriage is different than any other relationship. I love to officiate weddings. You're standing there. There's the groom. He's all dressed up best he can. The music plays. I and his future mother-in-law there and waiting slowly as the bridesmaids make their way down as slowly as they can. And then the flower girl and then the ring bear. Then the music stops. And the door closes. And then the wedding march begins. It's a little louder. Comes at a little quicker pace and the door opens and there she is. And I mean, his heart's pounding. And she walks down the aisle to be given away. And they take their hands and they turn in the presence of the congregation. And I'm telling you, is, is one of the greatest things to see right there. And God in Isaiah chapter 62 says to Israel, like a bridegroom takes a bride, I want you to know that your God takes you that way, loves you that way. 
You have to understand the depth of God's desire for his people. And so he says, Hosea, you're going to demonstrate it. And the treachery that sin and rebellion and betrayal It's how I feel. My people have committed adultery. There's no joy in the world that compares to the, the joy that can be in marriage. Deep, uninhibited, vulnerable love. Known and loved and the risk of trust and feelings and good days and bad days and sickness and health and strength and sin and, and to love one another and to be loved and just what the urban cowboy song knows. There's nothing like that. And there's no pain in the world like the pain that comes from the hurt and betrayal in a marriage. So, some of you, I know you, you know that pain. And God wants his people to know that his heart is the heart of a lover. Second thing to notice about this, the judgment of God calls Hosea to proclaim is a judgment that, that he's going to have to live. James Boyce, the old preacher, the 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church, he calls chapter 1 of Hosea the second greatest story in the whole Bible. says it this way, no Christian can doubt that the greatest story in the Bible is the story of the incarnation, life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the story of Hosea is second precisely because it is an anticipation and pageant form of Christ's story. Hosea is not only just going to live out this parable of God's message, he's going to embody God's pain. He's, he's going to suffer. And he knows from the very beginning this woman that he's going to take, the wife of his youth, is going to be treacherously unfaithful. Here's what God's actually saying. This woman, for you, I want you to, I want you to know that she's going to absolutely break your heart. She is going to trample your heart. She is going to betray you. She's going to be unfaithful to you. And I, and I want you to marry her and love her. And so he does. And the message is this. Listen, you, you don't understand. You, you, you can't understand grace. You, you don't understand your nature or human nature. Until you get a hold of what it means to have the person you love the most in the world absolutely betray you. It's what Hosea's message is about. To feel the depth of our sin. In the heart of God. But the third thing to notice about this, and this is so great, that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 10 and 11 in, in the first verse of chapter 2. It says this, Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, You're not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. 
And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they'll appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for the great for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And say to your brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, you're my people and to your sisters you've received mercy. The end of the story's put right here in the beginning of the book. His judgment is not the last word. Even though they have utterly forsaken him and utterly betrayed him and broken his heart and will find themselves in the midst of the consequences of the ruin and their shame, it's not the last word. Somewhere down the line, God promises right here in the beginning, he will have his people back. So what's he going to do? Well, that's chapter 2. I'll take two halves of chapter 2. The first half is the, the judgment. The second half is the grace. And, and I'll tell you how it works out. In, the, in the chapter 2, he, he's going to respond by cutting her off. So chapter 2 is, you, you see the intimacy between Hosea and God here because as Hosea speaks, it's really God speaking. It's God speaking in first person to his wife Israel. And at the beginning, from chapter 2, verse 2 to 13, God is going to announce that He is cutting her off. He will no longer be a party to her betrayal. He'll no longer be a party to her adultery. He will no longer care for her needs, because it says in verse 8 and 9, he was caring for, he was providing for, he was taking care of her, and she was taking what was being given to him. She didn't know it was from him, but she was taking that, gathering it up, and going to the other gods, the false gods, the other lovers, and selling that for pleasure. And God says, I'm not going to do that anymore. I will cut this off. He is so emphatic about the revelation of his intimacy with Israel. He wants them to know, listen, his anger is not the opposite of love. His judgment doesn't stand against his faithfulness. It's because he loves his people and cares about them that he responds with the right anger when they turn from him and prostitute themselves. His anger is that of the innocent Betrayed lover. His love is of that of a wonderfully forgiving husband. The relationship that God wants us to enjoy with him, the, the only relationship that has any power over the affection for your idolatry and mine, is the love of God to know that you are loved that way. It's the only thing that will transform you. You can try all you want at moral reform and it will not change you. It is the power of being loved. Well, chapter 2 is going to end the same way chapter 1 does, not in judgment. Because judgment's not the last word. It ends with a love song. In fact, Hosea 2, 14 to 23, the last half of Isaiah, I think it's the most beautiful love song in all of Scripture. It's the most tender love song sung by God to His bride. 
his unfaithful wife, Israel. In verse 14, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to woo you back into the wilderness where it all started, where you fell in love with me. He's going to drag her out of the nightclub and get her clean and lavish her with care. In verse 15, restore hope in her. Can you imagine the loss of hope that Gomer would have felt? I have thrown my life away. And he's going to restore hope and safety. And then in verse 16 through 20 is the most gracious four verses I can ever imagine. It's unbelievable grace. He's going to restore from a prostitute and all her filthiness, all her shame to a beloved wife, adorned and beautiful and loved, fully restored, healed from every sickness every disease, every sin. And in verse 20, it says this, and don't miss it. It says, and you shall know the Lord. This is intimacy restored. It's the word for when Adam knew Eve. It's more than compassion. It's more than pity. It's loving intimacy again. Full forgiveness, unreserved, fully restored Love and intimacy, purity and joy. If there's ever anybody that felt like they'd sinned or betrayed or throwed their life, thrown their life away, it was Gomer, wasn't it? The hardness, the bitterness towards herself, self-hatred, loss of hope. Into chapter two. All of it washed, all of it cleaned, made pure. So the question becomes, how is God going to do that? Well, chapter 3 picks back up. Hosea's the actor again. And look at it in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. James Boyce calls this chapter the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Let's see if he's right. Verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. Hosea's cut her off. He's, he's let her go. He's handed her over to himself. And she, she's found herself at the very bottom. She, she's a slave now. She's likely in this culture, she's a sex slave. She's an adulterer. Everybody knows it. There's no, there's no way to calculate the shame and hopelessness that she feels. On top of that, she's used up. She owes a debt that her body can't pay anymore. So this one that has professed his love for her is now selling her in the marketplace on the auction block because she has no more use. Nobody wants her. This useless item in a human garage sale. That's the scene. And God, wanting to show his love, 
sends Hosea to her again, to the, in her lowest moment, in all of her ugliness, in all of her guilt, to a woman that has nothing left to offer, and God tells Hosea, go to her again and love her. It is an emotional scene. There she is at the auction. She, she's for sale. His wife hardly recognizable. His wife hardly recognizable. A shell of who she was and the bidding begins. And you want to be careful here. I don't want you to be confused. This isn't a story to inspire you about Hosea. You're not Hosea. It's not like, man, Hosea, that's right. Love conquers all. You're not Hosea. I'm not Hosea. You know who we are? We're Gomer. So Isaiah's standing there. The bidding begins. You can imagine, you imagine it. In this day, public auctions were humiliating. The slaves were stripped naked so the buyers could see what they were getting. Gomer's standing there naked most likely. She, maybe she closes her eyes. The only thing left to do to shield herself from the humiliation. And then can you imagine... When she hears his voice, five shekels. Sure, her heart almost stopped. Another man says, eight shekels. He says, ten shekels. Going price of a slave that day would have been about 30 shekels. From the text, Hosea doesn't have it. So he finally says, 15 shekels and a homer of barley and, and a lethic. All he has to redeem her. Sold. So he walks up and he would have put his cloak around her to cover his nakedness and then takes her home. She, she may have wondered, is this revenge? Is it ridicule? And he says, no, I'm taking you home to be my wife. With all that that'll mean. She's, she's broken and he's going to heal her. He's going to tend to her wounds and her scars physically, emotionally, spiritually. He's, he's redeemed her. He's going to restore her. He's going to sanctify her. And in verse 3, he's saying, he, he says in verse 3, you, you must dwell with Dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's saying, you're going to live with me, not as a slave. You're going to be my wife. You'll be mine. And in fact, I will be yours. We're going to, we're going to rebuild this thing together. We're going to begin a marriage we never truly had. The marriage I always longed for. Derek Kidner in his commentary says it this way. He said, well, what's Hosea doing? He says, that there were, there were the disloyal habits of years to be broken and the realities of personal relationship to be unhurriedly explored together. Hosea doesn't have any of this naive sentimentality. He's paying a price. Hosea loves and shows its cost. Well, the question, how does God pay the price for us? 
If this is the answer, if this is how God's going to redeem his people, bring Israel back, how is this going to, where does he go into the marketplace? Where does he buy us back? Verses 4 and 5 give us the answer. It's, it's a little bit cryptic, but in here what it, what it says is that afterward the children of Israel are going to return, they're going to seek the Lord, and David their king. You say, wait a minute, I just learned history. David's already dead by now, I know. The new David. The eternal David. The son of David. Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Jesus Christ enters the world. He enters the marketplace. He clothes us, covers our nakedness with his righteousness because on the cross he died to paid the price of our sin to buy us out of our slavery. 1 John 4.10 says it's not that we loved God. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which means to die in our place and to endure our judgment. Jesus is the better Hosea. Jesus is the greater Hosea. He takes Onto himself the suffering and judgment for our sin. He bears our shame. He's, he's stripped, hung on a cross, and endured public shame of our sin. He redeems us with his life by taking our place and dying our death. He clothes our nakedness with the cloak of his righteousness. He restores us from hopelessness. When we have nothing to offer him, he pays our, our debt, sets us free, purifies us, loves us, joins us to himself so that we'll know the intimacy of his love, the love we're longing for, and they've been looking for in all the wrong places. Well, the end of Revelation is so vivid about it. It's a scene of a bridegroom who's prepared the marriage feast and awaits his bride. Pure and perfect forever. So I want to ask you this morning, I'll close with this. Have you ever been moved by God's love for you? I mean, I mean do you know his love this morning in the fullness that he desires for you to know him? I, I, I mean, I mean not, not, not just his strength and his sovereignty as king, not, not just his compassion and care as a shepherd, not just his love as a father, but in the intimacy and tenderness and grace of a husband or a, or a wife. Do you know him that way? Scary that kind of intimacy. It's what you're longing for, though. I bid you, I invite you, come to him. Let's pray. Father, 
we could spend the next 20 years and not plumb the depths of your message through your prophet Hosea. The implications of his life and his marriage to Gomer. And Father, I'm burdened. I know there are folks in here this morning that feel that they are Gomer. They've blown it. They have... They have wandered into darkness so far they just don't know how to, how to see the light out and have given up hope, are sure that you have written them off and that judgment is your last word. And Father, I pray this morning that you would shine the light of your love into this moment. Would they hear your call as husband? Would they hear you in the marketplace bidding for them to redeem them. Father, would they know that just a hint of your affection and intimacy and desire. And Father, the power you have to redeem and to make pure. We're all, we're all gomers. We, we confess that. Father, I pray no one would leave here this morning having not accepted your redemption. So, Father, I pray you grant, grant faith this morning. By, by your grace, would you, would you grant faith to believe and to take hold of your Son, Jesus? His payment for sin, His resurrection from the death, His promised a new life. And that that would begin now. Father, we pray the only way we can that's in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.